Okay, so I have something I want to talk about that is going to be very controversial. I don't know that I have an opinion. Well, I do, but I don't know. How do I say it? It's complicated. Let's put it that way. So I'm going to say what I think, and I want to hear all comments, opinions. Like I want to engage in really educated discourse on this subject. So I think that we as a society have you know, move past the point of having conversations about cultural appropriation. It's just very 2016 and Google is free. If anybody doesn't understand why certain behaviors are problematic, like white people wearing locks, um, the use of the N-word by people who are not black, stuff like that. If they don't understand why that stuff is problematic at this point, I think it's just they're choosing to be ignorant intentionally. I, I firmly believe that. However... Recently, there have been some events that have happened <laughs> that are making me, I don't know if conflicted is the word. Let me just explain. So for those of you who don't know, I am a member of the illustrious sorority, Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. Um, I was initiated in the fall of 2017, and that was one of the best decisions that I have ever made one of the best things that could have ever been bestowed upon me. I was offered a sisterhood. I was offered a network. I was given an opportunity to enhance the skills that I already had in myself while also being able to be exposed to things that I never would have been exposed to otherwise. Zeta has given me the opportunity to be president of not one, but two major organizations on the campus that I was part of. I was the secretary of another major organization. I was given the opportunity to travel to Ghana. I don't know if that would have been possible without the help and support of my sorors and my blue and white family and my Greek community. Being a Zeta has been great. Um, one of the things that drew me to Zeta in particular is that I feel like to me, that was the most pro-black of the D9 sororities, in my own personal opinion. And people in other organizations are drawn to it for their own reasons, and that is more than okay. It's not a competition. There's room for us all to be successful in our own respective organizations separately, as well as together as sister Greeks or brother Greeks or whatever else. Um, what, what drew me to Zeta was that I felt that that organization was very pro-black, and it aligned greatly with a lot of my own personal moral beliefs about race. I am first and foremost a black woman. Before I am anything else, I am a woman and I am black. And that is a huge part of my identity as somebody who grew up in a very predominantly white environment. Pretty much my whole life, I was always around white students. I never had black classmates. I didn't have black friends until my junior year of high school. Um, so finding my blackness has been a journey and understanding my blackness and, and understanding my history and where I come from has been really, really pivotal to who I am today. Like, it's, you can't separate that from me. I'm recording this in a Black Panthers sweatshirt. And I don't mean the Marvel movie. I mean the political party. Being black is who I am. And it's it's... Being black is just a very huge part of who I am. And so for me, joining an organization that was Greek lettered, I had to make sure that blackness and black womanhood was centered at the forefront of that organization. So Zeta was the first to 
charter chapters below the Mason-Dixon line, which is significant. Other organizations were focused on spreading out to where Black people already were, whereas Zeta was focused on going to places where Black people were generally underserved. So first to host a collegiate conference below the Mason-Dixon line, first to charter an undergraduate chapter below the Mason-Dixon line, first organization to charter a chapter in Africa. Like, can you imagine being part of a Greek letter organization that claims to be all about blackness and like not thinking to go back to the motherland like Zeta did that in the 1920s at a time when being a black woman was so difficult and you were so persecuted publicly that for expanding to other parts, taking the risk, first of all, because this is pre Jim Crow, like you would still get lynched publicly and with no remorse by the white masses. And for that to still be your priority, understanding what the risks were to you as an individual, the risks to your family, knowing that you have a community to serve and still taking those risks was really impactful for me. So that's what drew me into the organization in the first place. That's what kept my light going. You know, I live by the motto, community conscious, action oriented at all times. Like I'm really passionate about my organization. And one of the things that I became (sighs) conflicted on is white people in black Greek letter organizations. I knew about Sam Whiteout um, before I became a Zeta. I think I saw a video of Sam Whiteout when I was like a a junior or senior in high school before I really knew much about Greek life. Um, Sam Whiteout has a sister who was a Delta. There are plenty of people in plenty of chapters with white members and I have a lot of opinions on that. Um, that I'm hoping to be able to share and have a conversation and engage in some some dialogue about this. So my thing is, I feel as though it is, first of all, Black people need to be more selective about who we are allowing to enter our spaces. And I don't just mean organizations, although that would really be the best representation, but I just mean in general, like who who are we allowing to to be, who are we allowing to have access to our culture and to our spaces? Like, why have we allowed so much of our culture to be public for public consumption? That bothers me as, a, as an individual. Um, I don't think white people should wear cornrows or lock their hair. I don't think they should say the N-word. And I really don't think that they have any place in divine land organizations personally. That's my own personal opinion, because I think that some spaces for black people should remain black. You know, these organizations were created as a direct response to being excluded from white organizations as a direct response to not being able to have networks and not being able to. Um, assemble and to congregate as a black people, as like-minded black people. So I think for us to have these organizations created for this purpose and still, what's the word I'm looking for? To still open our doors to people who close their doors to us quite literally is is strange to me. And it, it really always has been. Um, so there's a, a picture going around on social media of a chapter of my own sorority and all of the girls in their fall 2019 new member presentation were all girls that were white passing whether or not they are white or they identify as white if you look at them on a surface level all of these girls are lighter skinned 
with straight hair that didn't require chemical manipulation to be straight. Like, you know, um, and if you go through the, the chapter page of this organization, you see that most recently a lot of the people who are invited to join the organization and a lot of the members of the chapter are not black people. So for me, as somebody being a Zeta, I'm a little bit conflicted, right? Because on one hand, you know, we as Zetas have a quote that is directly from our most honorable triumphant founder, Viola Tyler Goings. She was quoted saying, there's a Zeta in every girl, regardless of race, creed, color, who has high standards and principles, a good scholarly average, and an active interest in all things that she undertakes to accomplish. And that's a direct response to the paper brown, paper brown bag rule associated with another Divine Nine sorority and their membership um, intake policies at the start of their organization. And one of the reasons why, again, Zeta was created was to create a network, an opportunity for women who may have been excluded even within their own communities. So for me as a Zeta and that being um, a quote from somebody who created the organization, it kind of puts me at like a, well, you know, there's a Zeta in every creed of color, but why, why should we be condemned for making black spaces black? So that's one of my big conflicts. And I love my sorors near and far. Like, I don't care what color you are, what where you come from, what you believe in. If you believe in the work of Zeta and you understand the history and you're willing to get down on the ground and do the service and maintain the scholarship and, you know, keep Zeta in your heart, then who am I to tell you not to, to join or not to be interested? Like, I am in no position to tell you that. However, as a Black person, I am a little bit concerned with how eager we are to invite people who are not black into our spaces. And one thing that whenever, whenever I say this, one thing that I'm always being met with is like, well, if we denied people who aren't black, eh, we would be just as bad as white people who exclude us. And we should be willing to diversify our organizations because people come from different walks of life and you never know what different people can offer. So for us to close our doors and not be inclusive is just, it's hypocritical. I have issues with that as well, because one, that implies that black people are not diverse, which I don't agree. I think black people are more diverse than probably any other demographic of people that exists. There have there's research that has shown that there are more genetic differences within the black population than there are between a white person and a black person. I have more in common with a like genetically with a white person than I do with another black person. Also, black is, the diaspora is huge. There are black people from the continent of Africa. There are black people who are indigenous to the, to the United States. There are black people from the Caribbean, the West Indies, from South America. Um, the, the slave ship didn't just get to the U.S. and that was it. Like, it made stops along the way. So black people are diverse on a surface level. They exist everywhere in the world. Like you can't go anywhere in the world and not see black people. So to imply that divine nine organizations or black spaces in general become diversified when you allow other ethnic racial subgroups to enter is just not true. 
Because I know for a fact that my experience as a first generation American who is from Haiti, who was who was not a native English speaker, is probably not the same as somebody who's a fourth generation American whose ancestors were slave croppers, who has only ever spoken English their whole life and who's from the South. And I know that their experience is not the same as a black person who's straight from the continent and who was an immigrant who just came off and who came through DACA. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, I can't accept that notion of, you know, that the only way to diversify black spaces is by adding white people or, or non-black people to the space. Like, I just, I can't get down with that. Um, the other th- qualms that I have with that is, you know, this notion that we'll be just as bad as as white people if we excluded people from our organizations like but white people in real life do that like they're actually excluding people actively from their organizations um I wouldn't necessarily say I'm like a tit for tat or an eye for an eye kind of person but what is so wrong with having spaces that only belong to black people like why why is that such a bad thing why do we feel like we need to turn the other cheek all the time or or this this false notion of humanity or whatever it else that it is that we, you know, why can't we just say no? Like, why do we as a people always have to be the bigger person? We always have to do things that weren't done to us. Like, well, we were excluded from white organizations. And for that reason, we won't exclude white people. Like, I cannot relate personally. <laughs> I don't agree with that at all. Um, that's one issue that I have. The other issue is like, what is the criteria that we have for membership for white people? Like, how... How are we as a community inviting white people to our spaces and doing so in a way that doesn't compromise the sanctity, the sacredness of the space that we're in? Like, I don't know if that question made sense. It was a lot. So let me me break it down. So using the divine nine as an example, how how do we invite white people into the organizations with the certainty that they're doing this not for clout and not for social media likes, but because they genuinely care about the organization. Like, how do you, how do you know that you are inviting a person into the chapter who genuinely cares about the work of your organization, you know? And some people might argue, well, how can you make that distinction about black people? Like, well, why should I, why should I have to, you know? Um, I think that for the most part, it's safe to assume that if you are a black person and you're interested in this Greek letter organization, you are interested for this, this, and this reason. And yeah, there's always going to be some bad apples and some people who are really just doing it for the clout. But I think that we should be allowed to have that in our own communities. You know, like we should be able to invite people who look like us and just give them the sisterhood or brotherhood and the opportunities for networking or whatever else just off the strength that they're black I do think that there should be a stronger vetting process for non-black people who are interested in these organizations and my my logic and my thinking it for that is just I feel like how do I verbalize this I feel like every single community regardless of ethnic or racial, guidelines or whatever else has some sort of anti-blackness within it. And that is still true for black people. Black people have internalized, black people all over the world have internalized some kind of anti-blackness in our own communities. We've got colorism and hair texturism and black Americans having issues with people from the West Indies and from the continent and people, non-American black people having their own perceptions about black Americans. Like I'm not putting that past us as a people. However, 
people, other racial groups have literal legacies that are embedded in hating black people. You know what I'm saying? Like using Hispanic Latino people as an example, like there's such deep rooted colorism in a lot of those communities. Um, For example, Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, has the largest population of black people outside of the continent of Africa. So in the diaspora, Brazil has some of the largest numbers of black people in that country. But if you go look on the television or you look in the media, that's not what's going to be perceived. On te- like you're never going to see a dark-skinned Brazilian person on television because being black is is seen as being less than, you know, 66% of Cubans identify as white, despite Cuba being one of the largest slave ports in the West Indies. You know, like <laughs> Asian people, Asian people have some of the, the biggest legacies of anti-blackness even today. So knowing that a lot of these people coming from these cultures and coming from these backgrounds and these communities have these legacies and these histories of anti-blackness in their communities, how do we feel comfortable inviting them to join our organizations, one. And two, after they've been invited, how do we vet them? Like, how do you know that this is a person who really cares about the work of the organization? How do you know that this person will do the work? How do you know that this person is really doing it for the right reasons? Like, what criteria are we putting them through to um, make sure that they're really doing this for the right reasons, you know? I don't know if any of what I said makes sense, but hopefully somebody's going to pick up what I'm putting down. For example, I was recently having a conversation with a white Sigma and he was offended that we had a conversation about police relationships and he was offended that I told him that the reason that he would probably survive a police altercation is because of his whiteness. And he actually blocked me on social media after that conversation. He was genuinely offended about the fact that I brought up his race in a conversation about police brutality and police relationships with civilians. I feel like for you to be a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, an organization that has the legacy of having people like Kwame Nkrumah the president, the first president of Ghana, when Ghana became an independent nation, you have people like Huey P. Newton, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party. You come from a le- uh, an organization that has that legacy, but you mean to tell me that you don't understand why your race has something to do with why you'd be able to survive a, a police altercation? You know, that's that's alarming. That's concerning. That's very, very concerning. And I feel like had the people who were responsible for his membership and his entrance into the organization gave him more than just whatever it is they gave him to join. I don't, I don't know how, what his process into joining the organization was like, but I feel as though that is something that could have definitely been addressed or seen if people were more willing to look past just the the surface, like, oh, he's white, he's cool, he has good grades, he has this, let's let him in, in this, in the sake of being inclusive, like, that's, there's a fundamental issue with his thinking process, and how he perceives his race in relation to social issues, that's concerning, I'm concerned, I'm perplexed at that, using him as an example, and this is not an isolated incident, we seem how, see how Sam Whiteout was 
island on the island and other white Greeks, like just ugh, a lot. And um, in general, I think that, so specifically for the chapter um, that I had mentioned earlier, looking through the social media page, they actually didn't really have a lot of black members. And that's also concerning because um, I do think that it's, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess irresponsible and, and morally reprehensible um, for this chapter to, I don't know if they're not inviting black people or if they're inviting black people, but they're not interested or, but it's just, it, I just don't believe that at the university that you attend, cause they attend a public school, if I'm not mistaken, in a state that has a large, they're in Florida, in a state that has such a large population of people of color. I don't really like that term, but for the sake of this conversation, such a large population of people of color, especially black immigrant people, because you know Haitians love Florida and Africans love Florida and love Miami, that you couldn't find not one black girl with good grades. Really? I, that's that's interesting to me. And again, I don't want to sound like a hater because like I said, I love my sorors near and far, but I do think there is a critical conversation that needs to be had with us as a community about who we're inviting to be in our spaces. That's all. And um, I would never suggest that a chapter die out because they can't find black members. But I, again, I, I do think that there is a critical need for analysis and reflection and introspection with us as a community in regards to who we're allowing to be in our spaces and who we're allowing to be in our organizations and in our groups and in our clubs and whatever else. So that was my, my two cents. So definitely feel free to leave a comment on my Instagram or send me an email. Let me know what you think. I definitely would love to explore this conversation more on another episode, maybe with a guest or a co-host. Um, but yeah, that's that's really all I have for today. Um, I really hope you guys liked this episode. It was kind of a lot, but I wanted to make sure the first episode was a good one. And yeah, I'll see you next week. Okay, let's talk about Summer Walker because y'all going to put some respect on my fucking sis. This is the girl that gave us Girls need love, okay? She gave us stretch you out. She gave us session 32. Y'all not going to keep disrespecting her on Instagram. I, I can't. I'm not here for it. So Summer Walker has canceled the majority of the rest of her tour dates. She's expressed on numerous occasions in the past that she has social anxiety and she doesn't enjoy performing. And I feel like the response she's getting from social media is blowing mine. It's blowing mine. It's getting me tight because we're talking about being advocates for mental health and we're talking about just creating spaces for people, especially black people, to be open about mental illness. And y'all clowning this girl on every single social network. Make it make sense. Please make it make sense. Listen. I feel like life would just be so much easier if everyone just admitted that their issue isn't with her having social anxiety. It's just that y'all don't want to let black girls exist outside of the, I don't even know what the word is, the perceptions that we've created for black girls. And Summer Walker, as we understand her, doesn't fit into what you think a socially awkward black girl is. And therefore she's lying. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut the fuck up. Black people, black women are multifaceted and just can do things. Two things can be true at once. She is a singer and a songwriter. 
that doesn't make her a performer. And I think her record label is really irresponsible for knowing that she has social anxiety and still making her get up on stage. Because now they're making her vulnerable to rude commentary and shit like that that she doesn't deserve. And y'all clowning her and I don't like it. I don't like it. No Summer Walker slander will be tolerated anywhere near me. If you talk bad about Summer Walker, you have to run me my fate. We have to fight. I will not accept it. But listen, I've had enough. This is the woman that gave us session 32. Threw away your love letters. Uh, Like, what? No, I'm sorry. I cannot continue to let you all disrespect Summer Walker. Y'all be talking about she stink because she doesn't like to take showers. You be talking about she's faking the social anxiety because she be twerking on her man on Instagram. Like, those two things have nothing to do with her anxiety and her unwillingness to perform. Frank Ocean also has social anxiety. He does not like to perform. When was the last time you heard that nigga go on tour? I'll wait. Exactly. That man makes music from the comfort of his own home, puts it up on the internet, and then disappears off the face of the earth, and you don't see him. And nobody's bothering him talking about, well, you're faking because you were just at this thing, or you're faking because you're... No, y'all don't bother him. Just admit that it's got it's got more to do with Summer Walker being a black girl than it has to do with anything else. Y'all gonna stop clowning my sis, and that's it. Period. So for me, I think one of the things that makes post-grad depression unique is that there's so much more attached to it, if that makes sense. Like, when you graduate, there's this expectation, there's like a really silent undertone that just says, you graduated, it's lit. Like, you worked hard for however many years that you worked for to get this piece of paper that cost you several thousand dollars and this piece of paper is now your key to unlock all of these doors for you and now you are you graduated and you are on top of the world and I think that that expectation especially from family members who may not have gotten their degrees or who didn't have a traditional college experience that expectation from family members is that you're supposed to be happy now like you did what it was that you're supposed to do you reached a goal you need to be happy now and we're moving forward. And I think that if you are somebody who's a first generation American or a first generation graduate, it can kind of feel disrespectful, you know, to tell somebody like, I'm not happy after graduating. If your parents came from wherever they came from, at whatever adverse backgrounds or whatever country or whatever, to, to sacrifice and to start a new life that you would have the opportunities that they didn't for you to come out and graduate and be like, I'm depressed, kind of feels like a slap in the face. So I know for me, a huge part of it was the pressure of not wanting to disappoint or embarrass the people who helped me get here. I didn't want to embarrass my village, you know? So that sucked because you kind of deal with a lot of internal crisis. It's like, you know, a lot of cognitive dissonance. Like this is how I know that I'm supposed to feel, but this is how I actually feel. How do I get the two things to not be at odds with each other? You know, Um, I think that the three biggest things that made the transition out of undergrad difficult was one, I was bored. I didn't have anything. There were no more requirements for me. I didn't have to 
do a certain amount of hours of service or host programs or anything. I didn't have, nobody needed me. I wasn't needed. I was the president of two organizations. I was a secretary. I was in student government. I was on residential life. I was always needed. I graduated and for the first time in ages, nobody needed me. I was very bored. I was very understimulated. There was nothing really stoking my passions or keeping me interested. I was just, I was chilling and I didn't know how to chill. That was hard. The second thing that was hard is this was my first time paying big girl bills. I had rent due. I had to take my car to get serviced and I had to put gas in it. I had to pay for groceries. What the fuck? Like, I I was astounded at how I had money and then I didn't. And that kind of added an extra layer of stress because I didn't want to burden my family any further with my expenses because I was grateful I was lucky enough, and I'm grateful for the fact that my college was paid for by my parents. They paid for it. So for me to, I would pay bills, and then that was it. Like, it was clip. I wasn't leaving my house. If I have to go somewhere, I was going to walk because gas was expensive. And I was just not accustomed to having big girl bills yet. So that was weird. And the third thing is that I was lonely. Everybody, for whatever reason, Rather, I should say I, for whatever reason, chose to stay in Albany after graduation. Everybody else either left to pursue education elsewhere or they went back home to their respective cities and figured it out from there. And I had just gotten so accustomed to being in my own space in college that I didn't want to sacrifice that. And I wanted to stay in Albany. Well, I didn't want to stay in Albany, but I wanted to be alone in Albany was what I was used to. And I had already had a job. It didn't make sense for me to like leave and start my life over. So those three things combined, um, like I said, post-grad depression put me in a headlock. And I do think that those were the three main reasons. So my advice to anybody who is experiencing post-grad depression is one, utilize your resources to the best of your ability. Um, If you have a background or you have a community or you have a village that will allow you to depend on them even after you graduate, I would definitely say take advantage of it. I definitely know that I could have moved back home um, if I really wanted to. And I chose not to because I wanted to prove a point to myself. But I do think that these six months would have been very different if I did move back home. So if you have the resources to chill out and not pay bills for a while, like definitely take advantage of it because this shit is trash. And my apartment has some nerve to be asking me for money every month. Like I just paid it. I just paid. No. So I think utilizing your resources is definitely the first and biggest step and not just resources in terms of family and, and having a place to live. But I also mean like if you know that you are susceptible to post-grad depression or susceptible English. If you are susceptible to depression in general, there are lots of free resources, especially in New York City, that you could use and take advantage of um, that I think we should keep ourselves accountable for using. So that's my tip number one. Tip number two is make some friends. If you are going to a new city or starting a new chapter of your life, create a new set of friends that reflects that. Your old friends are cool and You should definitely still keep them around for one reason or another. But I do think that having another community of people who are who can relate to you 
who are new and different and robust and can give you new perspectives and new experiences would have been great. You know, I, I don't believe in making friends at work. If I don't plan to stay there long-term, I don't shit where I eat. And I had no plans of making friends with people at my job, but I do think that if, you know, if circumstances were different, I think that that would have been a good way to kind of mitigate the things that I experienced these past few months. The third piece of advice I would give is to find something to do. I would go to work, do my 40 hours for the week. At the end of every shift, I would go home, smoke, and go to sleep. Like, what kind of life is that? I had so much, or I could have had so much free time to do something, to create something, to to stoke my interests and my passions and to, you know, find something to do. I could have read a book. I could have gone to the gym. I didn't. I just let myself be sad and wallow in my sadness. And I think that in hindsight, you know, if I had taken a yoga class or made myself a summer reading list and stuck to it, or, you know, that would have definitely helped with my own experiences with post-grad depression. I think that my battle isn't over. I think that for the most part, I'm out of the woods. Like, you know, I'm six months out of undergrad hiding from my student loans, but I've gotten a better grip on my finances. I've created a network and a friend group in Albany. I have found a hobby, <laughs> this podcast that I've been putting off for one reason or another. Um, I made myself a reading list. I did join a hot yoga class. They meet every Wednesday at 7.15. I think that there are definitely tangible ways to make improvements. It's just a matter of finding a way and not making excuses and getting it done. So that's my own experience and my story. And I'm hoping that somebody can, well, I don't hope that somebody can relate, but if you can relate, shout out to you because this shit is hard. And if you're finding a way out and taking care of your mental health and keeping yourself accountable, more power to you. And honestly, we're going to get through this. It's, you know, (sighs) we just got to go through the motions right now. But yeah, this was my experience. And I hope that somebody who is able to relate is able to take my advice and my experience with a grain of salt. So yeah, let's move on to something a little bit more lightweight. I don't want to spend too much energy talking about the act of actually being depressed. If you are 20 years of age and you are a human being with emotions, there is a very, very good chance that you know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. I don't need to get into that any further. I think what I am going to focus on is the, the things that I could have done better to not end up where I was at because I had like a Britney Spears 2007 shaved head episode where I showed up to the barber and I was like, take it all. This is the haircut that I want. Take it all. And that man took the top off the Maybach. I had no hair, bald head, scalp, just scalp. And I had to pretend on social media that this was completely intentional. And I was starting a new chapter of my life when in reality I was depressed and just wanted to do something different with my life. Um, I think that that could have gone very differently. I didn't have to do that. And as soon as my hair was long enough to braid up and put some meek millies in. I've been wearing a wig since like July. So <laughs> we could have done without the depressive haircutting episode. So I think I'm going to utilize this time now to just talk about what made transitioning out of undergrad so difficult and in hindsight, what I could have done better to minimize the difficulty in that transition. 
Hello, my name is Chloe the Great, and welcome to the first episode of the As Told by Chloe podcast. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. For those of you who've been following me on social media for a while, I know this looks crazy. Like, Chloe, you said you were going to record the first episode in August. And it's November 15th, and I'm just now getting around to recording and uploading the episodes for this podcast, and I swear it is not what it looks like. And I I really have a good excuse. I don't know if I want to call it an excuse, but I do have a good reason. At first, I was going to come on here and front and be like, yeah, I'm a Libra, and we don't commit to anything. Shout out to my air signs and our consistency and commitment issues. But then I, I was thinking about it, and it just I feel like certain things are easier to charge to the game or like blame on the universe, but it just seems counterintuitive to create a podcast for the purposes of being candid and transparent and vulnerable and then to come on here and lie, you know? Um, The purpose of me creating this podcast and creating this space is to just come here and talk about issues that affect Black people, specifically in our early 20s as first-generation, either college graduates or first-generation Americans. So for me to to get on this microphone and record a lie, it just doesn't sit right with my spirit. Especially since there are people who can probably relate to my experiences and what I'm going through. So I'm just going to explain why this episode is four months late. Post-grad depression has had me in a headlock, and let me tell you something, that bitch could fight. (laughs) So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the concept, post-grad depression is a depressive period associated with graduating from college, whether it's your undergrad or your master's. It's especially pervasive for recent graduates who don't go directly into the workforce or who don't return to school right away. And post-grad depression doesn't have a formal diagnosis, like it's not a, it's not a, an illness that can necessarily be diagnosed, but it is a very real phenomenon. And that's just what I've been going through for the past going on six months since I graduated. And that's been one of the reasons why I haven't recorded this episode. So I actually wanted to use this episode to talk about post-grad depression, my undergraduate experience, and just everything in that umbrella. I want to preface this by saying that I am by no means and within no capacity, I am I am not a licensed physician. I'm not a licensed mental health counselor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I took one psychology course my freshman year of college when I was 17, and I, I'm not certified. I'm just talking about my own experience. Take everything that I'm saying with a grain of salt because I'm not a professional. So with that being said, I'm just going to get right into it. So... Without going too much into my own personal background, I am a first-generation American. Both of my parents are from Haiti. I was born in the States. Um, And shout-out to my Zoes, because you know that that Haitian childhood is rough. Like, your parents just have such high expectations for you. And when you get older, you start to internalize those things, and you start to set kind of unrealistic expectations for yourself. My mother... Danielle, she was cool and all, but she she ruled with an iron fist. And she had a one sport, one instrument minimum. There was no way that we were getting out of school at 2.45 when school ended. I was in gymnastics. I was in taekwondo with my brother. I was in ballet. I was in trumpet lessons. I was in chess club. Like, sis was not trying to have me in the crib. Like, there was just no chance of me being home. So as I got older... 
that behavior just kind of became second nature. Like, I I don't know how to chill. I don't know how to just relax. I always have to be doing something. That was me all through high school. I took 7 a.m. gym. I took gym at 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I had pit orchestra until 8 p.m. So I was in school for 12 hours a day, every single day in high school, Monday through Friday. And then I got to college and I hit the ground running, right? As soon as I found my niche, I found Haitian Student Association, and I got right into it. I was in the e-board within a year of me joining the organization. I joined ASUBA, which is um, at the Albany State University Black Alliance. I joined all types of organizations, National Congress of Black Women. I became a Zeta. I joined Student Association. Like I was busy. NAACP, I was everywhere. If there was a club, I was in it and nothing you could do. On top of that, I was still a full-time student. I took like 18 credits per semester. I graduated with a shit ton of elective credits because I was taking classes I didn't need. And I was also, for most of my college career, I was at least a part-time employee. There were some semesters where I worked 30-hour work weeks on top of having 18 credit semesters and still doing work for all the organizations that I was in. I did have some burnout when I was an undergrad. You know, there was there were a lot of stressful times. I had such a difficult time with failure because of my own upbringing. Like I said, I had a Danielle ruled with an iron fist and certain things she just wasn't going to tolerate for me. She wasn't going to tolerate. What's the word? Inadequacy, you know? So when I graduated, I had made the executive decision It was actually a fourth quarter decision not to go directly into school. And that came with a lot of pushback from my family because they, you know, they don't, what is a gap year? Like you go to school, you graduate, you get a job and that's it. My parents didn't grow up in the States, so their experience is just very different. So my decision to take a year off from school came with a lot of unsolicited opinions from family, friends, people who, yeah, they meant well, but... They wanted to see me do something because they're just not used to seeing me do nothing. Made the decision, take a year off. And I was like, in this year, I am going to stack my bread. I'm going to get my body right because, you know, it's summertime. I'm going to go on vacation. You know, Miami Carnival is just around the corner. My birthday coming up, you know. And work exercise. I had made myself a summer reading list of books that I wanted to do. I had made a bunch of goals. And once my family drove back to Brooklyn on Sunday, May, what was it, the 19th, 2019, that was the beginning of the end. Post-grad depression was like, aha, I got you now, bitch. What's up? So that's, that's exactly what happened with that.